One tool you can use if you are trying to understand what the Bible says, you're trying to interpret a passage of Scripture, one tool you can use, particularly in narrative, is uh, not different really than how you try to understand narrative in any other book as well. You, you can say, what's the situation of the characters at the beginning? Where, where are they coming from? What's, what's their context? And, and what's the situation of the characters? What are they facing at the end of the story. So what's, what's their original situation and where does the story leave them? That's one way of sort of tracing where the plot goes through the, through the, um, through the conflict and the, the rising action and then the, the resolution and then, and then where do we leave them? This, uh, this narrative in, in the passage that we're looking at here in Matthew 26 really um, is, is informed by that approach because what you see is those who enter this section strong end it weak. But the one who enters weak finishes strong. It's a contrast, really, of Jesus and his disciples. So look at the disciples as we're beginning this section. In verse 35, the verse before where we're starting, just setting up where the disciples are at, listen to how they speak of themselves. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They're coming in hot. They are strong. They are excited. They are with the Lord. Verse 56, the last verse, then all the disciples left him and fled. What in the world happened? Look look at Jesus at the beginning of our narrative. Jesus is grieving. He's sorrowful. He's falling on his face in weakness and anguish before his father. But by the end of our narrative, he is standing strong in the face of all opposition, walking bravely and boldly into obedience that will cost him his life. How in the world do we get there? See, really this, this passage fits with the whole story of the Gospel of Matthew, right? From before Jesus' birth, it was said, you shall call him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. The whole story has been leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's where we're getting to, and now we're getting really close. It's building and building. This story is just taking us one step closer to where the story was always inevitably going to go. It's about Jesus approaching the cross. But it's not just about Jesus' moment of temptation. The disciples, likewise, in this exact same moment, face a temptation and a testing of their own. What makes the difference in how they perform? What makes the difference in outcome? It wasn't initial willingness, right? The disciples were willing. Let's go. We got this. We're with Jesus. And Jesus, by contrast, was like, I really don't want this. What, what makes the difference? If you picture a train, it's barreling southbound with full head of steam. It's going, and then it's got an option. There's, gonna, there's, a, there's a switch. It's going to go east or it's going to go west. One train goes east, one train goes west. What flips that switch of the tracks that sends one east and one west? What, what makes that difference in the Christian life? In large part, it's prayer. Because the Christian life really is all about obedience from the heart. And prayer, likewise, prayer, 
Prayer is about your heart. So this narrative is going to set this up for us, this reality, that each of us is going to face, whether it's one big climactic moment or a series of moments of testing, of temptation, of trial, and whether or not we withstand depends in large part on your preparation for that moment. Prayer in this passage is going to reveal what's in our heart, what we actually believe. It's going to be seen as the preparation for how, how we hold fast, how we cling fast, how we stay faithful, and how we walk in obedience. So if, if, if you want to see, if we want to see together what you believe and whether or not your faith today is going to hold you fast tomorrow, what, what I want to hold out for you is this. Let's look at your prayer life because I think it's a strong indicator of what's to come for each of us. But I'm going to offer some reflections on prayer itself later on. First, I want to make sure we understand the narrative. So we're going to spend a few minutes just working through the text that Femi read for us to make sure we understand what actually happens here. Beginning in verse 36, we read this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He has sworn himself in covenant in this relational dinner to his disciples. He has sworn faithfulness to them that he will save them. He'll give his body. He'll give his blood for them. And now he goes to Gethsemane. It's a, a familiar place where they've been before, where he has gone to pray. Um, the word translated means oil press, which is um, seemingly symbolic for this moment of trying, this moment of temptation that he's about to endure, a pressing of his own. And, and there, would, there would be in this um, a structure, an inner structure. So as Jesus takes with him a couple of his friends, Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, in verse 37, he, he goes into presumably, an, an, not an inner room because it's outdoors, but a, a walled place, a private place, where now he is withdrawn into this private place where he can express what he says in verse 36 that he's going to pray. And in verse 37 he says, it says he began to be sorrowful and very troubled. This place, Gethsemane, where he would go to pray, was on the, uh, it's on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, and it, it, it faces Jerusalem and in between. Uh, so you come out of the city, you go down through the Kidron Valley, and then you start to come up the slope of the Mount of Olives. That's where the garden is. And that's going to be significant because from where they are, you could look out across the valley all the way to Jerusalem so that whatever's coming from Jerusalem towards Gethsemane, you would be able to actually see. Verse 38, he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. I'm, I'm so filled with sorrow that I could die. It's, it's like death. He's using the language here of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. You remember the, the refrain, why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's using the language of that psalm. He's picking up the tradition of the songs of lament of God's people from all times as they experience the sorrow and the heartache and the suffering of living in a fallen world that's broken by sin. He picks this up, but he picks it up most fully as the one who is going to bear the consequences of all the sin and all the brokenness for all his people for all time. His soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So he goes a little further in verse 39 falls on his face and prays, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from 
me. And then in resolution, not not as I will, but as you will. This cup that Jesus doesn't want to take, a cup can be used a few ways in the Old Testament. It, it can refer to just providence. This is God's plan. This is the way things are going to work. This is the cup that's for you, that you're to drink. But more often in the prophetic tradition, especially as the Old Testament develops and we get closer and closer to Christ, we see that this cup is symbolic of the wrath of God that is poured out either on the nations or on the people of Israel for sin, for rejection of God, for their rebellion against God. Make no mistake mistake. Jesus' soul is sorrowful because he is praying knowing full well that what he's about to drink is the fullness of the wrath of God, his punishment, the punishment of God for the sin of his people. He knows there is hell to pay and in a few hours he will pay it. He's crying out, if there's any way to avoid this cup, I do not want to drink it. Father, is there any other way? Do you understand Christ's greatest temptation? When Satan comes to him in Matthew chapter 4, earlier on in this gospel, and tempts him, do you remember what the climax of the temptations is? Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, look, all this can be yours. You can have it if you just bow down and worship me. Do you know why that's a temptation? Because Jesus knew that all the kingdoms of the world actually are his. What Satan was offering him was not something he would have had or wouldn't have had if he just follows God. It's something he wouldn't have had apart from the cross. Satan's temptation is to say, look, you can have the reward without the suffering. You can have the... You can have the crown without the cross. You can have the glory without the shame. This is Satan's temptation. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter, very excited that he's just been the first one to publicly say that Jesus is the Messiah. And and Jesus talks about what that means that he's the Messiah, that he is going to the cross. And Peter says, you will not die. Do you remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. This is the temptation of the enemy to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. You can be Messiah. You can be king. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to endure hardship. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and pours out his heart before his father. What is on his mind? I don't want to go to the cross. He is enduring the temptation all over again as he wrestles with his father in prayer. And it's not over yet. When he goes to the cross, what are the people going to say as he hangs there dying? What are they going to say to him? Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you just come down from the cross and prove it to us? The story of Jesus' life is fighting against the temptation to avoid the cross. And here in this moment, he wrestles with his father in prayer. Satan says, you can skip the hard bits. This is what he says. Isn't this what he says to us too? There's got to be another way. Those commandments, they apply to other people. Surely your circumstance is different, right? God's, God's word doesn't have to come so literally to me. It would be really hard to obey in these ways. There's got to be some other way for me. The, The wrestling is impossibly hard here for Christ. 
If it's possible, Jesus is the one who told us all things are possible with God. In a sense, Jesus is going to say this later, he could call on legions of angels to come and defend him. In a sense, it's possible. But it's not possible if he's going to obey the will of the Father. And this is, this is, this is, this is the hardest moment for us too, right? In prayer, when we're praying and we don't want to go through something, we don't want to do something, it's hard, it's costly, it's right there in front of us and we want to get away from it. And we're saying, Father, if there's any other way, please let there be another way. And our Father says to us, no. This truth, this, this reality must govern us, right? The God who cares about us enough to have said no to his own son so that he would go to the cross still cares about us enough now to say no to us. And in his goodwill and in his kind providence to have us be exactly where we need to be so that we can walk in obedience and fulfill his will. Knowing that his heart is for us, as it was for Christ. Verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. What a contrast, the anguish of Christ's soul and the sleeping of his disciples. He said to Peter, Peter who had boasted just a few verses earlier, five verses earlier, I'm going to die with you. Hey, Peter, couldn't stay awake for an hour? Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing. The flesh is weak. You, you may have good desires, but your flesh is weak. You need help. You need strength. Verse 42, again, the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. They failed again. So verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Hear the cry of the heart of the Son of Man and the Son of God. This is not dispassionate crying. The other gospel writers tell us he's in such anguish that he's sweating. His sweat is, is like drops of blood falling to the ground. He is in the deepest turmoil and anguish of soul that a human can know as he stares the wrath of his father straight in the face. So verse 45, he comes back to his disciples again and says to them, sleep, take your rest later. The hour's at hand. The, the, the time for preparation is gone. The time of action is now. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. He says, rise, verse 46, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is not a metaphorical see. This is look up and see. You can see the torches coming. They've, they've come across. The crowd has come across the Kidron. You can see the torches. You can see the lights. You can see the, the soldiers coming together with the chief priests and the scribes coming with their swords and their clubs. You can see them coming. Look, here it comes. And we transition from preparation to performance, from anticipation to action. How does it play out? Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. 
Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying the one I kiss is the man, sees him. This is, this is remarkable, right? They need a sign because, I mean, there's no Instagram. There's no, like, Jesus hasn't gone viral on YouTube. Like, they don't, they, it's dark, but even if it wasn't, a lot of them wouldn't have seen Jesus before, so they wouldn't even know which one he is. And so Judas has to give him a sign, and he's going to say the one I kiss, which just shows the, the depth of betrayal, that he's able to walk in the midst of Jesus, in the midst of his disciples, walk right up to him, and he is unlimited access to this point. He can walk up and kiss Jesus' face. And call him teacher. Greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Look at Jesus. Friend. Is that the first word on your lips? Not on mine. Friend, do what you came to do. He knows what the will of the Father is, and so he grants that it would come to pass. They come up and they lay hands on him, and now, now there's a whole bunch of chaos in the midst of the darkness, and the people coming, and the swords, and the clubs, and the shouting, and the kissing, and the movement, and all of this stuff is, is happening. And behold, verse 51, one of those who were with Jesus, we know it was Peter from the other Gospels, he, he, he stretched out his hand, and he drew his sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Listen, <laughs> understand this, no one aims for the ear. Peter wasn't like, I'll just strike him a little warning blow. You know when you hit someone's ear? It's because you aim for the head and they ducked. So, so Peter, in this moment, you got to understand his, the psychology of Peter going from I'm making these great boasts to realizing, oh, I've ultimately failed, to realizing, wait, this is my shot. And his impulse is to fight the way the world fights. So he takes out his sword and in courage and boldness, they're outnumbered. He's like one of only two disciples that has a sword, but he's like, let's go. And he takes a swipe and thankfully the guy ducks and he only gets his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think, do you, th- do you think I need your sword, Peter? Is that what you think? I can appeal to my father. He will send me more than 12 legions of angels. Guys, if I wanted to fight this with swords, if I wanted to fight this in war, I could give each of you and me a legion of angels who have Bigger swords than you, Peter. They're not going to miss. 72,000 angels could be here like that if that's the way we were going to fight this battle, if that's the way this kingdom comes. But Peter, you missed the point. This is not the way my kingdom comes. If If I tried to fight that way, how, how then, verse 54, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? I could take these guys out if that's what we really wanted to do, Peter. But the scriptures have to be fulfilled. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Look at your hypocrisy. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The control of Jesus In this moment of chaos, the calm of Jesus, in this moment of great anxiety and testing, is astounding. His commitment to God's will is unparalleled. 
All the disciples, verse 56, all the disciples left him and fled. See, the transformation is complete. The strong have become the weak. The weak has become the strong. Christ, the perfectly righteous and obedient one, stays the course to suffer and die in the place of us who flee. See, if you put yourself in the story, if I put myself in the story, you know where I am? I'm like, at best, I'm with one of the disciples. At worst, I'm with one of the chief priests or the scribes. The, the point of the story here, in one sense, isn't just, you know, if you do good enough, you can be like Jesus. The point of the story is we all fail, we all flee, we all run away, we all fall short. Every single one of us has fallen short of the commands of God. Every single one of us has failed in our performance. None of us is righteous like Christ. He had to come for this reason, that he could live this perfectly obedient, righteous life in our place, specifically because we fail, we flee. And by living this perfectly obedient, righteous life, he qualifies now to die in our place, to take the wrath of God that we deserve. He dies. He takes our curse so that any one of us, no matter which way you fled, you could have been one of the people carrying torches, could have been one of the chief priests in on the scandal, could have been Judas at this point. Peter, maybe you've boasted of great things. However you have sinned, however you have fallen short, there is hope if you trust in Christ because it does not depend on your performance but on his. He's going to the cross. He will suffer and die. The wrath of the God will be, fu will be fully born on him so that it was, like we sang, it was finished on the cross. There is nothing left to pay. If you turn from your sins and trust in Christ the righteous, Christ the perfect, Christ the one who fully and faithfully obeyed. And if you have trusted in Christ, then here's what I want to say. Trusting fully in his performance, we need to understand that the Christian life is called Christian because we follow Christ. We're his people. We walk in his ways. We walk in his footsteps. Our lives should take on the pattern of Christ. And so understanding that Jesus has perfectly obeyed on our behalf, now I want to ask the question, how do we walk faithfully in obedience? How do we faithfully walk like him and live this out so that we too can become faithful like Jesus? So I want to offer you three brief observations on prayer from this passage so that we can walk in faithful obedience to Jesus. Number one, prayer reveals what your heart believes. Prayer, prayer is about your heart, and prayer reveals what your heart believes. So if I want to find out what you love, I would probably say let's have a look at your credit card statement. Let's, let's, look at, let's look at your bank account. Let's see where the transactions were made. Let's look at your calendar and see where you spent time. Let's, uh, let's look at your GPS and see where you drove. Let's look at your search history and see what you're reading. If I want to know what you believe, then I want to say let's look at your prayer life. We need to understand the contrast here between Jesus 
and the disciples. First of all, before we even get to the content of prayer, it's about the reality of one prayed and one didn't. It's about the act of praying or not praying. Praying versus sleeping. Which reveals to us, really, in in this narrative, reveals to us, where is your hope of strength? Jesus said to them in verse 31, you will fall away because of me this night. This is, not, this is not an obscure saying. It's not a mystical saying. It's not a magical saying. It's not a parable that somehow the meaning is hidden from them. He made it clear. You will fall away because of me this night. And Peter doesn't believe it. Verse 35, as we said, even if I must die with you, I won't deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Where is the strength going to come from if you're going to do that, Peter? Verse 41, Jesus told them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here's your opportunity. If you actually want to follow through on your faithfulness, watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. But in verse 45, he comes and he finds them sleeping. Sleep and take your rest later on. And the result in verse 56 is that they all left him and fled. Why didn't they pray? Well, because of what they believed. They were trusting in their feelings. I got this, I'm good. They were trusting in their words and their professions. I'm not, I'm not going to fail, I'm not going to fall short. I'm going to be strong when the moment comes. And they're trusting in their understanding. They, they didn't know what the test was going to look like, but I'm sure we'll be fine when it comes. All the same reasons we don't pray. They trusted in themselves. They didn't trust in the one who said, you will have need of strength that you do not have. So watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Whether or not you pray shows what you really believe about the source and the sufficiency of your strength. But it's not just whether or not you pray. It's also the content of your prayer as well, right? When you think about the content of Jesus' prayer, Going a little further, verse 39, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Do you understand that in this prayer is encapsulated the whole of world history? So like, go all the way back to Eden. God says, hey, don't eat that fruit. Well, whose will is going to be done? You see the results, right? What, what about the Tower of Babel? The people have been told to spread out and to go and to fill and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Instead, what do they do? Instead of spreading out, they build up. Let's build a tower. We'll build ourselves a way to heaven. We'll show God who's who. And then curse and the division and the people are spread out because they can't speak the same language. It was their will, not God's. What about the nation of Israel? They, they're, they're brought into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. He gave them his law uh, so that they could know what to do, how to live, how to be, live a life that's pleasing to him. But what did they do when they moved into the land? Did they obey his will? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Jesus is the first human in all of history to actually pray, not my will, but yours be done, and then live it. 
This moment is so crucial. At the center point of all of history. That's why Jesus commits this, commits this to God in prayer. Spurgeon puts it this way about this phrase. He says, this, this, this phrase, not as I will, but as you will, this was the vital part of his petition. This was a true essence, his true essence, for much as his human nature shrank from the cup, still more did he shrink from any thought of acting contrary to his Father's will. The only thing that was more abominable to Jesus than going to the cross was disobeying his Father. Does that reflect what you believe? This needs to get worked out in prayer, right? Because our temptation, again, our temptation is always going to be the same. I know I should obey, but it's hard. But it's costly. But, but, but. Let me ask you a very simple question. When you pray about hard areas of obedience, are you willing to actually verbalize these words, not my will, but yours? So Jesus labored in prayer. We're not sure how long, maybe something like three hours. He's laboring in prayer. And what's he saying? All he's saying, all that's recorded for us is simply this, not my will, but yours be done. Are you willing to pray the contents of your prayer? This shows what you believe. Do you value his will or your will? Which rises to the surface? Do you spend your time in prayer trying to convince God to work things your way or trying to remind yourself that you believe that his will should be done on earth as it is in heaven? You know what, what this might look like? I'll give you a for instance. We've been... Um, We've been living at a distance, everyone distanced, safely distanced from one another for, for two years. We've been wearing masks and covering up. We've been doing everything behind screens in the privacy of our homes. We've never been more hidden from other people than we have these past two years. And behind closed doors and behind masks and in the privacy of our work-from-home situations... All kinds of things have happened that should never have happened. All kinds of patterns have been established that should never have been established. And some of you, knowing that, have been sensing the kind but strong and firm and heavy hand of our Father pressing on you the time to confess is now. That, that as the distance goes away and, Lord willing, the masks come off, that this should be representative of us walking out into the light, walking closer to our brothers and sisters, and just saying, I, guys, it's painful, right? Because confessing our sins and asking for help and asking for prayer, man, what are people going to think of me? I mean, I get that for everyone else, but my situation is unique. My sin is different. Surely I can just overcome this on my own. We don't want to pay attention to the command in James 5 to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another. Are you willing to say to God, not my will, no matter what it costs, not my will, but yours be done? 
Maybe, maybe the obedience for you is different. Maybe it's, it's not simply confession. Maybe it's, maybe it's paying taxes that you owe to a government that you hate. Maybe it's confronting a brother or sister on sin that you've observed in their life and you know someone needs to call them out for, for the good of their own soul. Or maybe it's leaving a relationship that's leading you into sin, but you know it's going to be costly, it's going to hurt to leave. What, what you pray reveals what you believe. What do you believe? Do you actually believe his will should be done rather than yours? Are you willing to pray it? Because if you pray it, that shows that you believe it. And here's the second thing about prayer. Prayer prepares your heart for obedience. It prepares your heart to obey. See, obedience is just like everything else in life that's important. If something's important, you have to prepare for it. In the Discover GFC class the other night, where James asked us the icebreaker question, he's, he's like, what's one skill you wish you could instantly learn? And one brother said, wedding planning. Uh, so yeah, you know what's coming up in his life. Uh, you know, it's important. You've got to prepare for it. It takes a lot of preparation. If that's true of a wedding, how much more for the good of your own soul and your spiritual life and your future eternal life with God to prepare? Jesus says in verse 41, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is not a military watch. He's not saying get out your swords and stand at the gates. It's a watch over their own hearts. The spirit was willing. The flesh was weak. They needed help. Jesus is saying, pray so that you will be able to obey like you have boasted you will be able to obey. And by the time Jesus is finished praying and he goes back and wakes up his disciples, the time for preparation had already passed. This is this terrible moment. When Jesus wakes them up, he's been watching. He's been watching as they march across the Kidron. And his disciples have been sleeping. Now here's this terrible moment. Jesus is like, wake up. And you have the immediate guilt of, oh shoot, I was sleeping again. And then the terror of looking across and seeing these people coming and you don't understand what's happening. You know what that's like to get woken up out of a sleep and stuff is just happening around you? It, it, that feeling of walking into the classroom and the teacher starts passing out the test and you're like, I forgot it was today. That's terrible. It's a terrible feeling. Friends, you do not want to be caught in a moment of temptation to sin, unprepared. Jesus is calling us to be watchful over our hearts and to pray. Jesus said in Matthew 18, he said, temptations to sin will come. Temptations to sin will come. So you know, you know that they're coming. In chapter 24 and 25, he talked about what it's like to live in this age. It's going to be a long age and all kinds of crazy stuff happening around us. And you've got to get ready for the long haul. So over the long haul, there's going to be lots of temptation. Paul's going to say, our enemies, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against every ruler and principality, the spiritual authorities and the heavenly places. We are in a cosmic battle against temptation and sin that would take our souls and kill us. Are you being watchful in prayer? You don't know what temptations you're going to face. You don't know what temptations are coming this afternoon. Or in six days, or six months, or six years. Are you watchful in prayer? Watchful for temptation. Are you watchful for where you're vulnerable? 
Are, are you looking in at your heart? Are you looking at the circumstances around you? Are you watching over the Kidron to see what's, what's coming? Where is the enemy making inroads and approaches? Where is your love being drawn to the world? Where are you being distracted by things that are happening around you? Where, where is your mind being consumed with anxiety and fear? Where are you beginning to compromise in moral ways that you would not have previously compromised? Are you being watchful? Do you know the state of your heart? Do you know where temptation is going to come? Are you preparing yourself so that when the moment of temptation comes, you'll be strong in the source of strength that Christ has provided through the kind provision of prayer? Prayer prayer reveals what we believe and it prepares us to obey. And here's the last thing. Prayer reorients your heart to God. It reorients our hearts to God. You know what's terrible? Texting. Texting is terrible. It's terrible. Social media is terrible. These things that just remove us from other people. Masks. Masks are terrible. I know. Things can be necessary evils, but they're still evils. They're terrible. No, I'm serious. Because what, what does it do? It puts, it puts distance and separation between us and the person. Anything that begins to mediate relationships and come between us and another human automatically distances. It creates space for misunderstanding, for alienation. Sometimes the fights, the misunderstandings that start Social media, texting, you don't understand a person, you miss a nuance. The only way to resolve them is to what? Get together and talk face to face and have your hearts realigned. Oh, that's the reason why we're friends on Facebook is because we're actually friends. I forgot. I forgot. So we can actually be friends and talk to one another. And, and your, hearts, your hearts can be realigned. This, this is exactly what, what prayer is. Prayer is an unmediated maskless, distanceless relationship with our God where we fellowship with him and we can find our hearts realigned when they've got out of whack. This is why Jesus prays in verse 39, not as I will, but you will. Verse 42, your will be done. Verse 44, the same words again. He's aligning his heart with the fathers. What does that look like? If our heart is aligned with the Father's, what will we do? What is the will of the Father for us? Look at how your will be done translates into action. Verse 54. But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? Verse 56. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You want to you pray for God's will to be done? This is not a mystical thing. You know what it is? It's for obedience to the scriptures. Obedience to the revealed will of God and the fulfilling of his purposes for this world. I'm going to ask you a trick question, okay? I don't know if it's a trick question if you tell people ahead of time, but I'm asking you a trick question. Who accomplishes the will of God in this narrative? See, the reality is that Jesus gives himself over to his enemies because what they're about to do is actually the accomplishing of the will of God so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. 
There is no one in this passage and there is no one in all of God's creation who can do anything other than accomplish God's will. This this is the God who says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the mightiest man in the world, enslaving God's people, Pharaoh with all the riches and all the armies. God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I'd show my power over you and get glory. This is the God of Psalm 2. The nations are raging and the people's conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in heaven laughs. This is, this is the God we're going to hear about it in just a few days, a few weeks, when Peter's preaching on Pentecost and, and, and he says, or in Acts 4 rather, when Peter says, these people who came to arrest Jesus and crucify him, they did whatever God's hand and plan had foreordained to come to pass. Here's the reality. You cannot escape the sovereignty of God. The only question for you is not whether your will will actually be done in the end or God's but whether you'll oppose him or bring your will in line with his. That's all that's left to us. The scriptures will be fulfilled. God will reign. Christ's kingdom has come. It is coming and it will continue to come until it fully comes. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will happen. Question is, is your heart aligned with God's now? This is why he gives us prayer. To commune with him and to align our hearts. I don't, I don't know this morning if you came in, like, um, if you came in feeling your weakness, your need of strength, your need of God, or if you came in strong feeling like, I got this, I'm doing okay, I'm strong, I can perform. But my prayer as we leave is simply this. That we would honestly examine our hearts and commit to be a people of prayer recognizing that whether we pray or not shows what we believe and we are a people who believe that we need the power of God to prepare us to obey, to align our hearts with his so that we can walk faithfully today, tomorrow, and until Jesus comes again. Let's pray that he make us that people.